Liberty Minded presents Speaking on Liberty, a collection of interviews with today's finest minds. All right, uh, welcome again to Speaking on Liberty. I'm your host, Kyle Platt, and I'm joined in the studio by Jason Lee Bias and Grayson English. We've changed up the seating arrangement just a little bit because last time it looked like we didn't like each other and we were kind of awkward sitting on one couch, but that's all right. Uh, much better now. We are very pleased uh, this morning slash afternoon, but more like morning, to uh, have Stefan Kinsella. Stefan is a registered patent attorney in Houston. He has taught as adjunct professor of computer law at South Texas College of Law and has served as chair of the computer law subcommittee of the Federalist Society's IP practice group. He has published numerous articles and books about IP law, international law, and other topics for the Ludwig von Mises Institute and countless other organizations. He is the preeminent voice against intellectual property today. Thank you so much for being here, Stefan. Uh, I would like to begin uh, with just sort of like an intro question into uh, how you got where you are uh, in terms of your view of intellectual property. Was there, or can you recall a moment uh, when you were studying patent law and it just clicked, this does not really jive, this is not consistent with my worldview, and not only that, but this this just does not work in, in a rational uh, framework. So I was in law school from 1988 to 91, and um, I actually never took an IP course. Uh, I didn't plan to be a patent attorney, but uh, I started doing it about 1993 after I was practicing law. Um, so I just learned it you know, on my own in practice. But the first time I actually was exposed to IP ideas was in reading Ayn Rand's, um, I think, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. She has an essay in there explaining why she believes that patent and copyright are important parts of a free market system. Um, and I assumed that she was right. I was just learning about libertarianism then and uh, just interested in it. So I assumed that she was correct because it, it's called a property right. But her argument, even from the beginning, never made sense to me because she was justifying a you know a seventeen year patent and a seventy year copyright, and these terms seemed arbitrary to me. And she was justifying the practice of um, an inventor getting to the patent office first and beating out all the other inventors. And she had some bizarre uh, cobbled together argument for why that was justified. She was obviously just trying to justify the system that we had, and it just didn't make sense to me. Um, so that was the first thing. I mean, the very first argument I ever heard in favor of IP didn't make sense to me because it seemed utilitarian and arbitrary and unprincipled, unlike the rest of her fairly consistent um, free market views. Um, so I kept thinking about it um, just in the back of my mind, and I assumed I would find someone somewhere who had a better justification for it. And uh, I looked at it over and over and over the years, and when I started practicing it, uh, say, five or six or seven years later – I started thinking about it even more. I said, you know, I'm doing this as part of my main practice now. Uh, and then I, of course, started practicing and seeing how nasty and messy and arbitrary and legislative it is. Um, um, and I started getting the feeling there's something really wrong with this. So I started looking heavily into it. And the more I looked into it, I just kept trying to come up with my own argument for IP because no one else had done it that I had seen. Um, but the more I thought about it and studied property theory, Hoppe's theory on how uh, property rights are rights and scarce resources, and uh, articles by others like Wendy McElroy and Tom Palmer, uh, I just finally realized the reason I'm having trouble is because this is actually counter to capitalism, counter to free markets. And I just became like an abolitionist. Uh, it was fairly easy. I was already an anarchist at that point. So once you realize that this this kind of system – uh, can only be brought about by legislation, which is what it appeared uh, to to me to be. Right. Um, it's not too hard to reject it. So I started. Uh, I think I presented a few articles, like in '95 or so, uh, that I was coming out completely against it for abolitionism of copyright and patent. Um, on the subject, there, uh, I've, I know you've read written a lot that uh, as someone who's involved in the uh, subject. That a lot of people, both anti and pro, but especially on the pro side, don't really fully understand the nature of uh, intellectual property and tend to make mistakes about what is a copyright, what is Correct. a patent, 
and all, what is a trademark, what's a trade secret, all these different things. Um, could you kind of elaborate on some of the common mistakes that people make about um, intellectual property yes, just and like sure. what it is? Sure. Um, so let me just make a, a preliminary comment. Um, a lot of uh, uh, professionals, uh, people like me, um, and a lot of lawyers have this sort of, I don't want to call it arrogant, but they they adopt the pose that they are in a unique position to to opine on this, and that mortal, mere mortals and laymen have no right to have an opinion on this. Yeah, uh, I think that's complete. Yeah. I think it's complete nonsense. In fact, I think if anything, lawyers are in the worst position of all to have political opinions because they're uh, they're dishonest, adversarial type advocates or. Or they think they know more than they do about political theory. They think just because they know how to navigate in the legal system of these artificial laws that the state imposes on us, that they're some superior uh, philosopher kings, and usually they're not. Um, so um, I would say just just like you guys or can have an opinion on taxes without knowing the intricate details of the tax code, uh, and just like a man can have an opinion on abortion, but even though he's not a woman, right? I mean, I don't think you have to be a specialist to have opinions on these things. Uh, and in fact, I would say the difficulty of the normal intelligent person to understand the details of the IP system is probably a red flag that there's something wrong with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because most libertarian common sense moral laws or, or, or principles we agree to are fairly intuitive and easy to explain and understand. Um, you just have to be consistent. You know, Don't hit people. Don't take their stuff. <laughs> live and let live. <laughs> it's, it's not that hard, right? Um, so the common mistake – well, let me – Say the term intellectual property is uh, is used to include uh, several special types of laws, um, and the term is called industrial property in other countries like Europe. Um, it refers to um, uh, patent, copyright, trademark, and trade secret. Those are the four classic types of, I of IP, um, and some other newer types like boat hull designs and things like that. Um, the uh, 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 the term intellectual property is fairly new. Like when patent and copyright were authorized by the United States Constitution in 1789, um, they weren't called intellectual property. They were actually referred to as monopolies. So the the, famer, the, the founders said, look, we need to give the Congress the power to grant these limited monopolies to stimulate innovation and things like that. So it was explicitly an exception from natural law and natural rights. It was never looked at as a natural law. It was seen as a government intervention, a, a, a temporary narrow monopoly designed to accomplish a government purpose. Um, uh, now, we disagree with that, but at least they were fairly honest about it. But what happened was um, when there was a backlash by free market economists and people that are opposed to monopolies with these government-granted monopolies, which originated back in the statute of monopolies in England in 1623. I mean you know, there was no bones about what it was. Um, they started calling it a property right. Justice propaganda. So it's only about in the last hundred or, or so years that you even use the term intellectual property. And the reason they do that is just to confuse people so that if people like us come out against it, they can say, well, you're just some leftist who doesn't like property rights. You're against capitalism. You know, when they are the ones favoring a, a, a statist government grant of monopolies, which is explicitly designed to protect people from competition on the free market. I mean they admit this. They say that if you don't have patent and copyright, you're going to have unbridled competition. Well, we can't have that, yeah. right? So uh, these things are anti-competitive, anti-free market, anti-property right uh, monopolies. Uh, so they're only called property as a, as a propaganda ploy. Are also, there any uh, – sorry, guys. <laughs> are there any um, kinds of sort of protectionist IP-ish – institutions that you would be in support of such as like the trade secrets thing guys like right. sometimes when i think of like guilds in the old days the, the way that guilds would protect trade secrets and kind of right now granted that that is kind of an economic distortion i mean do you think there's any kind of uh redemption in that is there any kind of positive from something uh, along those oh, lines well l l i i think i, I actually had a long-winded, and I didn't answer actually Jason's question. Let me briefly just say, sure. uh, 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 patents are what cover inventions, you know, a new mousetrap. Trademarks cover uh, a mark or a logo that d identifies a source of a good, like Coca-Cola. Um, copyright covers the 
creative way of expressing an idea, like a novel or a painting. And a trade secret is just keeping something secret that gives you a competitive advantage if other people don't know it. Um, and do, yes, you're right. People do mix those up all the time. Now, um, Kyle, as to your question, um, I, my thinking has evolved on this. I would say when I first became an abolitionist, my primary target was patent and copyright, and it still is. I think those are the two big ones. Uh, my view has sort of switched. I used to think patent was worse, uh, but I think copyright is worse now because uh, even though I think patent probably uh, imposes more cost on the economy every year, I, my guess is – the patent system in the United States alone probably imposes 200 to $500 billion of cost every year on the economy in the U.S. alone. Um, the copyright system probably doesn't impose that much cost, but it, it distorts the cultural market and it suppresses free speech, um, which is not really a monetary thing so much. But I think it's more dangerous because it lasts a lot longer and it's being used by the government as an excuse to uh, stifle internet freedom and to impose police state type rules. So I actually think copyright is more dangerous because the internet is the most important weapon we have to fight the state, I think. And they're going to do everything they can to crack down on it. And so they're going to use the threat of terrorism, the threat of child pornography, um, the threat of hackers, and, and also uh, pirating, right, copyright violations. So they're going to use these things as an excuse, which they tried to with the SOPA and PIPA thing, right? Um, so my thinking originally was you, you cannot justify patent and copyright law, but it still might be immoral to copy, and maybe there'd be social norms against it, or maybe there'd be contractual regimes. People would come up with ways of – you know, like every time you go see a movie in the theater, uh, the movie owner would make you sign a contract saying, for the rest of my life, I agree to be bound by this private IP regime, you know? or if, I, if you buy a book – you agree with the publisher Random House that you're part of this guild's rules, and if you ever use this like anything you've learned in this book or tell anyone the plot of the novel, then you could be sued for a billion dollars. Okay, um, but my view has evolved on this, um, and I used to think there was a somewhat of a justification for trademark and trade secret, uh, but my view has gotten more radical in the sense of number one, in a thickish kind of way. I actually think there's nothing whatsoever wrong in a moral or an economic sense at all. With copying information and using it. If it's out there, I think people should be able to use it. I think, and I also think that the idea that you could have contractual regimes that would simulate any type of patent or copyright uh, is completely absurd because, you know, I'm, if I want to buy a $10 John Grisham novel, I'm just not going to sign a contract tying myself up for my entire life and obligating myself to hundreds of millions of dollars of damage if I, if I happen to be influenced by what I read in the book. I'll just move on to the next publisher who's open source, or I'll pirate it, and I'm not subject to a copyright then. Well, I mean, so we I think, share that, that anyway. Yeah. Like what we read, we share those things with people all the time, just casually. Yeah, the reason I say that is because the, the copyright restrictions are vague, right? I mean, you cannot make a derivative work. which So people get confused about what copyright means. Copyright is not just the exclusive right to reproduce a work. Uh, literally. It's also the right to reproduce it in a non-literal way, like substantially reproducing it, and it's the right to make derivative works, which is basically a work that's influenced by it, right? So it's not – you know, if, 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 if you tell me the plot of Star Wars and I've never seen the movie or read any books, I might write my own novel and it might have some similarities to that kind of plot structure or theme. Well, you could say that's a derivative work and I could theoretically be sued now for that. Um, so that's my point is that if you want to simulate a copyright regime by contract, you would have to have people agree in writing to pay very stiff fines because if it's $10 or $20, then there's no, there's no strong penalty, right? It wouldn't work. So you'd have to agree to millions of dollars of fines for doing things that you, you might do even unintentionally, like share the work with someone else or, or, or build your own work based upon it or something like that. Um, so I think all these contractual ideas are non-starters. I would say that if you do agree to something, it should be enforceable, but I just think they're not going to be able to get many people to sign on to it, um, and piraters wouldn't be bound by it. Um, now, trademark, I used to think trademark could be justified in some narrow aspects, but if you look at some of the studies I've collected, trademarks are almost as bad as copyright. They're used for censorship and anti-competitive means all the time. Um, and moreover, the problem with trademark is that it gives the right to sue 
to the company that owns the trademark, right? So if you base it in fraud, like you say that uh, some new company crops up and sells you a fake Rolex watch, you've been defrauded. Therefore, trademark law is justified. Well, no. It, fraud law is justified. That means the customer who's been deceived should have the right to sue this you know, counterfeit seller. Why should the competitor have the right to sue? He doesn't – you have to have a belief in reputation rights basically, which is another problem with um, – uh, with, with IP law, so I don't. I think you. I think trademark law should be abolished, and we should only have fraud law. Now, as for trade secret, you should be able to keep something secret. You don't need a law to keep something secret. Exactly. The problem. The problem with trade secret law is that it goes beyond that, and it says if you take the steps necessary, reasonably to reasonably try to keep something secret. Okay. Then. That, that is defined as a trade secret, which is, means information that gives you a competitive advantage over customers or, or competitors who don't have the information, like a, like a customer list or a, a formula for Coca-Cola or something like that. If that information gets out, let's say one of your employees leaves and tells someone else, well, first of all, presumably you'll have a contract with him, so he's just in breach of contract. So you don't need trade secret law for that. You can have contract law to cover that. But trade secret law lets you go to a government court get an injunction against this third party who just learned the information from your employee and tell them you cannot use this information or reveal it to anyone else under penalty of going to jail, you know, contempt of court. So as long as it's not made public yet, the, the court will try to keep it, contain the secret. But the way they contain it is not to enforce the contract against the employee, it's to enforce it against the third party who never signed a contract. So I think even that's illegitimate. I don't think the government courts have the right to tell a third party who learns information uh, what he can do with the information. So I would abolish all forms of it. So, so I guess my answer is no. I don't actually see any legitimacy whatsoever to any form of IP law, and I would actually include uh, defamation and, and reputation rights as a type of IP right, although it's not usually classified that way by lawyers because it's based upon the same mistaken notions that you own… You own something that you create that has value, even if it's not a scarce resource. All of IP law is based upon that fallacious notion um, that that whatever you create, you own. Well, that, that's the central mistake, I think, of IP law. And I think that that is a very common objection that I've heard when discussing IP with people is that there is this intuitive sense that when you create something, yes. particularly you know when I've had this discussion with my brother. He'll talk about how he's writing a book of poetry, and he feels, one, that he deserves compensation because it's his original creation. And he also feels that, like, it, it um, he also talks about how he wants to be credited with the work. And right. he feels that he needs copyright to legitimate the, uh, right. you know, his, his yeah, creation. And, and this goes to um, Jason's earlier question about people confusing the types of IP law. He, what he's confusing is plagiarism and uh, credit and attribution issues with copyright. Copyright actually has almost nothing to do with plagiarism, uh, neither does patent. Uh, plagiarism is just a kind of a private social or contractual matter with a university or something like that. It just means you're not giving authorization. Most copyright violations are, have nothing to do with plagiarism. I mean you know, if I pirate the latest um, uh, uh, Avatar movie… I'm not going to say it's made by Stephen Kinsella. I mean, who would who would want it? They would think I might have messed the rest of it up, you know, or I'm I'm playing around with it. They want to get a copy of Avatar by James Cameron. So if I if I sell that or give it away, it's going to be a duplicate of the original. It's not plagiarism at all. Um, and on the other hand, if I plagiarize, I'm just misrepresenting that I'm the author of something. That you know, I could, and that doesn't involve copyright infringements. For example, I could take um, you know Plato's Republic and it's not under copyright anymore. It's public domain now because it's so old. And I could say, here's Stefan Kinsella's Republic, and it, it's not a copyright violation at all. There's no, there's no one whose rights I'm violating, but I'm committing plagiarism. So I'm just going to look like an idiot, <laughs> uh, you know. And there's a social stigma for doing that. I'm going to have a bad reputation, etc. I think that's um, one of the reasons why, you know, especially in today's world with the information age and the, the the fact that you can find any information on the internet super fast, that it just once again, backs up our point about the illegitimacy of IP. Uh, you know, yes. yeah. oh, if, I someone, I think, if someone um, plagiarizes, you will know almost immediately. You can find it. 
Yeah, it's even easier now. Uh, and, and even, I mean, even let's say two, three, four, five hundred years ago, before modern IP, you always had the issue of attribution, like in the sciences or in the arts. Uh, you would have sometimes fights between scientists, but in the social, com in the scientific community, you know, Einstein and someone else might quibble over who came up with this. Leibniz and uh, Newton might quibble over who came up with uh, calculus first. And people look at papers and they want to know and they figure it out. So you don't need. Uh, and, but but let's go back to a more fundamental issue that um, that um, Grayson was mentioning. Um, um, you, you went. It's actually everyone is people are confused. I believe about. Uh, property rights and creation and labor, right? And that's because of just the way Locke put it and the way even libertarians put this. We, we're sort of uncareful and flip about explaining where property rights come from. So we'll say something like, well, you know, if you find a resource, you know, you're the homesteader or the original appropriator, then you own it because you were the first one to find it, right? Uh, or if you acquire it by contract, by trade, you're the owner of something you get from someone as a gift or as a contractual sale or trade, right? Uh, or if you create something, you know, so they'll say like there's these three ways of coming to own things. But actually, I think that's a mistake. You actually do not, um, uh, you do not, creation is not a source of ownership because to create only means to transform an existing resource into a more valuable arrangement. But to do that, you have to own the raw materials already. So all you're doing is using your intellect and your labor and your creativity to make something more valuable. You're creating wealth in the sense that you're making a more valuable object, but you already owned that object. Right. So I think, creation is not a source of property rights. I, I think it was it was Rothbard, but I mean it's been said by many people. Uh, the matter of creation, as you're saying, is really just using natural laws that exist in the world, yes. and it's really more of an act of discovery yes. of the combination of natural laws to create. Yeah, th actually, uh, even Ayn Rand said that, and if she had st stuck with that, she would have realized it was incompatible with her IP views. Murray Rothbard said it explicitly. Mises said it explicitly, um, and that's embedded in the entire Misesian notion of of, um, of economics or human action, which is human action is the attempt to use your knowledge of what causal laws there are in reality and what possibilities you can achieve to select an end you want or a goal that you want to achieve and then to select the means to achieve it and the means are these scarce resources in the world that have a causal effect that change things from the way it would have occurred and it helps you achieve your end so that requires both knowledge and scarce resources now the scarce resources are the means of action uh, are scarce which means only one person can use them at a time which is why we have property rights to say who gets to use this so that we're not fighting over it all the time? Well, wait, I've, I'm sorry. I'm, okay. Go ahead. I have one brief, just one brief addition to all of that. You used uh, uh, James Cameron's Avatar as an example. Yes. And one of my brother's, um, I guess, issues with my intellectual property position was that he was saying, with a big thing like Avatar or something that has widespread cultural appeal and economic value, the attribution there is not so difficult because of the person's reputation. But his point was, with someone like Miles, my brother, uh, he d no one knows him, and he, this would be him trying to break into, you know, the field of, of I guess, poetry. So well, but but you said earlier he he thinks he deserves to be uh, paid or to be credited or both. Well, he kind of has both, really. Yeah. But I think they mix, I think, he makes these things together. Um, I mean, really, realistic. I mean, Cory Doctorow says, you know, he's a great, great quote by the guy. Although he's bad on some things like socialized medicine, but he says that, um, you know, the, the the real threat to an author like your brother is is not that they're going to get pirated. It's this just, you know, uh, that they're never going to be known. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, that's. I what mean, really, worried. that's what most people like him. They want to people to know them. And I mean, honestly, I don't think it's a, a big problem in society that little authors are being plagiarized you know and like john grisham comes out with a, a novel that he really didn't write he just copying some little guy because he could bash him over the head i mean this is not even the problem the problem that copyright uh, advocates complain about is 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 non-plagiarist copying of well-known and valuable works um and and anyway as as uh, kyle said you know if your brother just posted on a blog then he's got proof on the wayback machine that he was the first one that wrote it I mean, is it really a, a problem of rampant plagiarism in the um, 
in the copyright industry, uh, in, in the poetry industry. Uh, I just listened to a really good podcast um, on the, I think it's on the Surprisingly Free podcast, and it was an interview of um, uh, a law professor, Chris Sprigman, about his brand new book that's forthcoming. I think it's called The, uh, the Knockoff Economy. And he's just going through all these examples of industries that don't have IP protection, like um, uh, perfume and uh, fashion and, and even the comedy industry. And he was explaining how in the comedy industry, there's a lot of self-policing of this kind of plagiarism. Like he was giving an example like Robin Williams, the, the famous comic early in his career, was accused for a while of, of kind of stealing other people's jokes, which means you know, kind of taking too many of other people's jokes too literally without giving them attribution. And he would just get stone-faced by all the other comics when he'd show up at clubs, and it got to be so uncomfortable for him that he stopped showing up for a while. Or he maybe changed his procedure or maybe explained to them he wasn't copying. But basically, there's a, there's a self-policing mechanism for people that are jerks right, and that are dishonest. You get a bad reputation. Um, so I just – I don't see that it's a real problem, but but as for dessert, think about the dessert issue. Um, if you actually take a, you know, let's say you make a new product like the uh, uh, a new Android tablet to compete with the iPad. I mean, that's a tangible product. You spend a lot of money and effort and labor and time to make it, but you don't deserve any profits. I mean, no one may buy it, right? So no one deserves profits at all, uh, even from something t- uh, physical that they make. Um, so the idea that you deserve money for something intangible that you make, if you release it to the world and tell people this information, uh, to me, is just not justifiable. I, that, that speaks to uh, a, a question that I wanted to ask, and it seems like every time I have uh, a conversation about IP with anyone, uh, there's a, a, a litany of, of your, your typical responses, your typical devil's yep. advocate responses. One of those that I thought was the most interesting and the one that I have the, the, the most trouble refuting is this. What kind of, it, it's the incentive to innovate. What kind of incentive is there to, for, for a company to throw all of the resources, uh, the, the R&D, research and development, cash, into developing a new product, into innovating something that will make life better for the world and for the company, because uh, you know they'll, they'll make a hopefully a, a handsome profit from it. Uh, if once they put all that R and D cash into that product and de- and then develop that product, uh, another company can reverse engineer or do whatever needs to be done to release a similar product or a product that is maybe even all the same, uh, without any of that initial uh, capital investment? Well, okay, so there's so many ways to respond to that. I mean, uh, one answer, which is not, it sounds flip, but it's not, is that a question is not an argument. And so it's fine to have questions. So when people say, how would this work, or how would the free market work? I mean, maybe the answer is we don't know, or maybe we have to guess, or maybe we have an answer. But the the fundamental thing is the fact that you have a question or that you're confused about something or that you don't understand something is not an argument for IP. Okay? It's fine to have questions. So first get that uh, – you know, it's, it, I don't want to go into a discussion with them where they get to have the presumption that if I can't answer this question, then they get to have IP. <laughs> I mean it just, it just doesn't follow. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, you know, I mean, under Russia, I'm sure that citizens would have said, well, if we get rid of the state monopoly on soap, you know, what kind of soap are we going to have and how many brands would there be? And, uh, you know, the answer may be, I don't know, unless you go look in America and see what they're doing. But we don't have an IP free, IP free world right now, so it's hard to, it's hard to guess. But, um, um, but second of all, right now, even in today's world, uh, people make movies and music. When people can pirate it, I mean, the fact that there's copyright law doesn't mean people can't pirate. So they face piracy right now, and yet they still make these these movies. Um, I think the the straightforward answer is they they do it. Excuse me, to make a profit. Um, and the other answer is it's not always so easy to just come in and copy someone. First of all, there's any number of products introduced on the market every year, and a lot of them are flops. So if you're going to copy someone, who are you going to copy? You're not just going to copy something the day it comes out. You're going to watch and wait and see which one of these 7,000 products that came out last month is the one I want to copy, right? The ones that are profitable, the ones that are popular, you know, the iPad, not the Juju tablet. You follow me? So 
while people are waiting to figure it out, then the original seller has this first mover advantage for the period of time at least until people realize, oh, that's the one that's popular. Well, they realize it's popular because it's already made a lot of money, so it's already made the money. Um, and then well, and then the competitors have to gear up. They have to get capital. They have to perfect them. It's not so easy to just snap your fingers and do – just because you have knowledge doesn't mean you can do it. I mean knowledge – a lot of knowledge is tacit. Uh, I mean I can read a book on uh, brain surgery tomorrow, but I, I can't commit – you know, practice brain surgery the next day, right? Um, so I think the answer is that in, in the free market, um, uh, uh, some things are worth engaging in and some are not. I would also say that even under a strict, strong IP system like the U.S. has, there are still lots of projects that are not worth investing in, right? Even if you take the pharmaceutical industry and people argue that um, uh, you wouldn't have pharmaceuticals without patents, which is just factually false. There have been periods of time where Italy and the Netherlands and other countries didn't even have IP for pharmaceuticals, and they were the strongest uh, innovators in that field. So there are just counterexamples in history if you just look at it. Further, of course, as you know, um, the biggest hindrance to innovation was, as I would argue anyway, I don't know if you agree with it, but the biggest hindrance to innovation is the state, the state's taxes and regulations. So we have this hideous tax regulatory system that imposes costs on consumers, on workers, on companies, uh, environmental regulations, minimum wage, tariffs, trade law, you know, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax, not to mention the FDA itself, which causes it to cost $300 million to develop some drugs. Um, so you want this criminal government agency that does everything it can to destroy commerce and civilized life to impose probably trillions of dollars of human death and destruction and cost on the economy every year. And yet the you know hardy free market underneath still manages to survive to some degree. You want to trust that agency to fix one little aspect of the problems it's causing by giving another monopoly. I, it just makes no sense whatsoever. It'd be better to get rid of the FDA, get rid of the taxes. I mean, if all these uh, if, you know if uh, all these big companies or, or pharmaceutical companies could compete with each other and they could they could just copy each other's drugs and you'd have a lot more innovation. Borrowing, stim, you know, uh, uh, modification of things, improvements, uh, and everyone had you know fifty times more resources because the, f the economy was free. You'd have a lot more innovation in drugs and research. Um, uh, further, I do believe that that uh, I'm not a homeopath or something, but I do believe that a lot of natural remedies, right, that some people um, claim work, or or distorted or pushed uh, or pushed away. Because they're so cheap and these big companies can get monopolies in the form of patents on these new drugs. So that's the ones they want to push to the medical industry, which is also heavily government-controlled. right? So in other words, all these prescription drugs that cost so much money, the reason that we were dominated by those at, at the expense of more natural remedies sometimes is because you can get a patent on them. If you couldn't get a patent on anything – then I think doctors would make a more rational choice. Well, I'll just choose the one that really works better because there's no big profit incentive for the pharmaceutical companies to come bribe me to use this one, you know, instead of that one. Uh, so that would be my answer: is that it's just it's just a huge government caused mess, and the government adding one more monopoly privilege is not going to solve it. Yeah, it seems like it's the usual dynamic that. There's a problem caused by one kind of state intervention, and people yep. say there's a problem, but they don't see the cause, yep. and so the immediate reaction is, therefore, we need to do this other state intervention. But also, um, we kind of entered this now, uh, it seems like the main battleground for people both pro-IP and anti-IP is drug patents. That's where a lot of the arguments come from on both sides. And you kind of touched on uh, the issues regarding... Uh, uh, you touched on the issues regarding uh, research and how research is distorted and all that. Something that I think is also an important thing on drug patents is the effect that it has on the third world um, yes. and, and not being able to get certain drugs. And could you say something about that? And then also, I think a sign that we're kind of winning the battle on IP is that most people, if you're talking about IP, they're, the first thing they say is, I don't support the current patent system. Yep. Yeah, they'll always they'll always say we need radical IP reform, but we still need IP. And um, one reform idea that I heard from someone uh, what it was 
that you have drug patents to, uh, pr to that this is kind of an argument someone who's a strict utilitarian might uh, hold on to. Um, you, have, you have patents to spur innovation, but um, you make it so that the patent holders aren't allowed to deny people the right to use the patent. Right, right. They just force you to make sure you pay them. Uh, so could you talk about the effect yep. of drugs, the drug patents on the third yep. world, and then also kind of respond to that idea? Well, so drug patents have an effect not only in the third world, but even on the first world, because um, th there, is ex there are examples. Um, there's a lawyer. I've got some posts on my uh, website, c 4 uh, siforg which is Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. Um, if you just search Alan Black, there's a lawyer named Alan Black representing some people with this rare disease um, I think it's called Fabry's disease or something like that um, in the U.S. And because of distortions, the interplay of the FDA and the patent system, there are people literally dying because they can't get this drug. Um, it, this drug is in short supply. So what happens is um, it's being sold in Europe because they can get higher prices there. There's some reason. I forget why they're selling it in Europe, but there's less to sell here. Now, in Europe, there's a second drug that's a substitute, but it hasn't been approved here by the FDA. So basically, only this patented drug, Fabrizyme, uh, can be sold here, but it's in short supply. So people are and, – and no one – no competitor can make more Fabrizyme because of the patent, and the, the substitute drug can't be sold. So people are dying even here because of patents. And of course, in the third world, it's horrible. Um, now, what these drug companies do is they try to sell at a lower price in some of these other countries, but it's still prohibitive in Africa and other places, right? Um, and you do have some foundations seeing there's something just immoral about denying people drugs, uh, especially when you could still sell it at a profit. You're just not going to make 20 times profit, just you know two times profit. Um, and then another thing that happens because of this is so, – so some countries like, say, Canada, which is a wealthy country, but they, they're more um, – the government controls things a little bit more. So there's price controls on some drugs. So you know, you'll have Bayer or one of these big companies – Let's say they'll sell a pill for $30 a pill here, and they may sell it for $15 a pill in Canada, and it may take them a penny a pill to make or you know, a dime to make. So they're making a big markup in either case, but they sell it in Canada for $15. Now, that's a legal sale, and under what's called the doctrine of patent exhaustion, they can't complain if someone resells that pill. It's not a patent infringement because they've already gotten their, they've gotten their royalty payment in effect. So what happens is people engage in drug reimportation. They'll go to Canada, they'll buy a bunch of the drugs for $15, and they'll sell them here for, let's say, $20, and it's still cheaper than the $30 pill here. And so the, the, you know, first there's a charge of patent infringement, but they lose on that because of the doctrine of exhaustion. So then they lobby the FTC to ban these import sales or the FDA saying that they're not safe, even though they're the same goddamn drug, and it's already been approved here. It's being sold here. Um, and even some libertarians, like some people at the Cato Institute, came out against drug reimportation because it was a way of undermining the monopoly price they could charge under the patent system. So here, here we have uh, – and I'm talking about Richard Epstein, Doug Bandow, and other guys. I mean, So basically you have guys that are otherwise libertarians, but when you hold patents as an important right, you have to – it's going to come into conflict. So you have people that are libertarians… Because they believe in patents so strongly, actually coming out against free trade, right? Now, on the other questions, uh, now you talked about um, this this phenomenon where you ask someone, you point out an abuse or a, an obvious injustice of the law, and every time you talk to someone, they go, "Well, I'm not in favor of that," right? Mm -hmm. It's like it's like playing whack-a-mole because you can every time I can mention thirty or forty abuses, and almost every IP proponent would agree with me. Well, I'm not in favor of that, and I say, "Well, what in the hell are you in favor of?" And they say, "Well." I'm not an expert. Like, well, then you know the problem is the utilitarian mindset. I think the problem is almost everyone that argues on this topic, even anti-IP people, are utilitarian. They they always want to ask about well, what's the effects on innovation? What's the incentive effect? Uh, how is this going to work? How are authors going to be compensated? Um, and I'm happy to talk utilitarian concerns, although I think there's. It's not the first place we should start. We should start with principles and justice and individual rights and property rights and the government's just function, which I think is nothing. But if they're going to do anything, they should, um, they should only protect property rights, and these are not property rights. Um, now, and I would also point out this. 
for the people that are say they're utilitarians and they say, well, we have to have a patent system, or they they'll say what you said, Kyle. They'll, they'll say, um, well, I don't be, I don't believe in that, but we have to have some IP. Or so you'll say, well, do you think people really need a hundred and fifty year copyright term? Let's say, no, no, it should be shorter, but it shouldn't be zero. Like, well, what the hell should it be? Five years, twenty years, seventy five years? It's arbitrary, but. If you're utilitarian, presumably there's some data that will kind of give you a, an idea of what the optimum amount would be. So what is it? No one can tell you. They don't even try. So I think that most utilitarians are not even serious. Put it this way. The layman utilitarian is just trusting the experts. They assume the experts know. They assume the experts have the data. The experts that try always come up with, we can't figure this out, or, or it looks like it's an actual harm, right? And the, and the IP shills... They don't even try because they don't care. They just want to protect the monopoly that you know patent lawyers or the movie industry or the music industry or the pharmaceutical industry or sometimes the software industry. It depends on which side you're on. Um, so if you point out – so think about this. When, when you say, well, we should abolish patent and copyright, they'll say, well, it's in the Constitution. And it's like, well, okay, well, the Constitution also authorizes slavery and taxation and, and conscription apparently and nuking Japan. So – what? Well, you know, ask the Constitution. You know, really. Um, so, but, but, but the point is, if your argument is utilitarian and you're going to rely on the Constitution, you don't really think that Thomas uh, James Madison did an empirical study on the effects of. I mean, it was just a hunch. The founders had a hunch. They said, well, maybe it's a good idea to have patent and copyright. They didn't even put it in the law. They just gave Congress the power. And then Congress right away passed a law. No one did any studies. Okay, So it was just a hunch. Well, in the last 200 years, have we done any studies that prove this hunch? No, there are none. So even if you're utilitarian, you can say, look, there's a mountain of studies out there, and every economist and uh, you know, researcher who looks into this either says, it looks to me like it's costing us money or it's, it's reducing innovation and reducing creation or distorting the, the market. Uh, or distorting the cultural landscape, or we can't tell. It's impossible to tell, which actually I think is probably the right answer because value is subjective, right? I'm a Misesian. Um, value is not interpersonally comparable, and it's subjective. But um, uh, so if you're utilitarian, if you really were honest and you looked at these studies, then you would say we need to get rid of IP until at least until someone can prove that we need to have it. But they're basically conservatives. They don't want to change. They say, well, we have it now. We can't change it. Um, you know, there are a couple things on there. There's two different questions, so I'm going to ask them separately. The first one is, um, you kind of mentioned the being in the Constitution and all that, and something interesting is earlier you mentioned that that once it was in the Constitution, they actually or not when it was in the Constitution, or maybe, but when they originally came with the idea, they actually called them monopolies. They're more straightforward about that. With um, the, stat the statute of the statute of monopolies kind of, in England, right? Um, something that's also kind of interesting that I heard you talk about once is the word piracy is kind of ironic now to be using in a violation of uh, copyrights, considering that on patents at least that that's been used historically for literal pirates. And yep. if you could talk talk, uh, talk some sure. about that, because it's kind of funny to me. And then second of all, there's uh, something that you talked about is how this plays with libertarian principles in general and something that you've also done a lot of work on is contract theory and if you could talk about how ip relates to contract theory um and how it informs our ideas on that okay um yeah so like i mentioned with the word intellectual property itself which is sort of a propaganda ploy by the state and the proponents of these monopolies uh they don't want to call them monopolies although it's they're often called monopolies, even by advocates of it. When they slip, you know, um, the Supreme Court calls them monopolies, and they they think it's okay, but they call them monopolies. Uh, and likewise, you'll hear theft and stealing used, which is not. I mean, even if you're in favor of copyright, it, it is not. It is literally not stealing or theft to copy. It's copying. It's not stealing someone's information um, because they still have it. Now you could say you're stealing the you're stealing the value of that, or you're stealing the money they could have made. But if if you make it that explicit, that you put them in an uncomfortable position because now you're now they'd be arguing, uh, well, if I had a monopoly, I would make you know a million dollars. If uh, I could make you buy this, yeah, right? Make, so, I'd make so much money. What they're claiming is a property the right in the, they're claiming a property right in the money 
in customers' pockets, in potential customers' pockets, oh. right? So they're saying that if you can uh, can can uh, compete with me by copying things I've done, then you prevent me from getting money from Joe Blow on the street. Well, but that's not a violation of your rights unless you have a property right in Joe Blow's pockets, right? But otherwise, you could say that if I compete with you by opening up a competing store, that I'm stealing your customers, which people say that too, right? You know, Walmart is stealing the customers of this little mom and pop store. Well, they are stealing the customers, but there's nothing wrong with stealing customers, right? Or if I steal your girlfriend from you, I'm stealing your girlfriend. You don't have a property right in your girlfriend. <laughs> so, you know, stealing is over Not anymore. God. Exactly. <laughs> right, not anymore. <laughs> um, uh, and so I think the same thing with piracy. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. That is ironic that you use the word piracy because uh, piracy's just got a negative st stigmatism because real piracy is completely immoral and evil in action. It's murder, death, and you know mayhem, right? It's boarding someone's ship and killing people and taking their stuff. Um, and and the uh, the ironic tie-in that you're alluding to, uh, Jason, you must have read that uh, post or that article, um, was that um, patents – the word patent means open. It's like um, a letter patent is just uh, an open uh, decree by the crown, the, the monarch or something, like giving someone some right. They can tell – they can show people this letter and say, I'm the guy that has the right to do this. I'm the only guy that can sell playing cards in Britain. I'm the only guy that can sell export leather from sheep or whatever. Uh, I'm the only guy that can trade with the East India Company or, or with the, with India. Um, uh, I'm the guy that I'm the only guy that can um, uh, colonize lands in the New World on behalf of the Crown. You know things like that. Uh, and I'm the I, I've been authorized by the by the King under this letter patent to board ships that that are flying the wrong flag on the sea. And take their stuff. In other words, privateers, uh, which is pir called piracy normally. Yeah. So Sir Francis Drake in the, I think 1500s was a notorious uh, privateer or authorized pirate, authorized by a letter patent. So patents actually have authorized real piracy in the past, right? So uh, and and nowadays we're calling people that are not hurting anyone pirates because they violate copyright law. So it, it is a little bit ironic. And then the other question was about tying in a uh, oh contract contract yeah. theory. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. You can maybe you can steer me to what you're thinking about. I don't know if there's a direct tie-in. Other than that, the way to solve the IP problem is is also the same approach used to have a clear understanding of the nature of contract. Uh, there are confusions about IP and about contract because of in my view, sufficiently unclear um, or contradictory views on the nature of property and rights. So if you step back and you, and you view the fundamental human right, as Rothbard said, all rights are property rights because the only possible conflict that there could be is always a physical conflict over scarce things. So any, any conflict that could possibly be – that could possibly arise and that any system of law or justice or rights could ever address – is going to be a physical conflict with physical force used between two human beings with physical bodies over either their physical bodies or over some physical resource that they might both want to use as a means of action. So the fundamental question is always in every system. I don't care whether it's communist, uh, 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 welfare statist, fascist, capitalist, whatever. The question is always under our legal system, who is the person who gets to control that resource? Right? That's always the question. Every system is a property system. Um, and the libertarian answer is that the guy who has the best objective connection to the resource should be the one who gets it so that we can all agree on that and have peace and cooperation and live and let live and go on. And then our view is, well, then what the best resource is is not the vote of the majority, the will of the majority, or the needs of the many over the few or, or the dictates of the state. Or the decrees of a legislature, but the uh, the actual objective fact that I am the guy that found and transformed this thing, and no one else owned it first. Okay, so it's the first user principle. So so that is the fundamental of libertarianism: is that the first person to own it is has a better claim than anyone else who comes after him. Otherwise, 
if you don't think that earlier users have a better claim, then the guy that takes it from me now doesn't own it because someone can just take it from him. You know, it's almost like the Misesian regression theorem for money where you trace back the value of money to the first day that it was just a commodity. You can do something like that with, with property. You can say for, it to, for, for, the, for the current owner to have a better claim than someone else, which is what ownership means, um, then that means that the first person to, to own it, which is the first person to appropriate it, has to have a better claim than anyone else. So that's the basics of libertarianism. Now, what that implies, that implies two things. It implies that there are no property rights in non-scarce things. And in fact, for there to be a scarce a property right in a non-scarce thing, like a pattern of information or knowledge, you always enforce rights with physical force against real things. So it's just a disguised way of changing who owns these things. So for example, so this is why this view of property, which is very clean and clear and simple and Lockean, uh, makes IP uh, impossible. Um, so for example, uh, if you say you have the, a copyright in this novel, what that really means is you can, you can use force, legal, legitimately legalized force against me to make me stop using my body in a certain way or make me stop using my property in a certain way or to make me pay you some of my money, like for damages. So it's always a dispute about some scarce thing. It's just under the guise they're pretending to own this scarce pattern, which no one can own a pattern. It's just an excuse to take my property. right? So if you, call, if you accuse me of infringing copyright, you're really asking the court to, to take some of my money and give it to you, even though I already own the money. I have the best claim to that money. I haven't committed a tort against you. I haven't, I haven't uh, made a contract with you to give you the money. I haven't given it to you voluntarily, and I haven't uh, trespassed against your property and harmed you so that I owe you restitution. So there is no justification for taking my property from me, but yet they do it in the name of IP. So IP is just a disguised way of stealing other people's property. Uh, so this view of property means IP is, um, uh, is not, not justifiable. It also implies that the owner of a resource has the right to dispose of it. If I acquire some good, then I can give it to you because I'm the owner. So my ownership of it means I'm the one who can decide whether you can use it or whether you can't use it. I can deny you permission or I can grant you access. I can let you come in my house or I can tell you you can't come in my house. Uh, or instead of giving you temporary permission, I can give it to you for a month. I can lease it to you or rent it to you or I can give it to you outright. So ownership implies the right to contract, and all contract is is the right to dispose of property that you own. So the implication of this sort of, I think, very clear Rothbardian and Lockean view of property is that contract is just the transfer of title to property. It is not what most people think of contract as, as a binding promise. Most people think of contract as, I promise to do something. And now the government is going – or the legal system is going to um, enforce that. It's going to be a positive – it's going to be an obligation I have to perform. right? So if I promise to paint your fence, then I'm, I'm obligated to do that. And if I don't, now I'm in breach of contract, but what's the result of that? I owe you money. So even, even here, it always comes down to a transfer of property. Um, I owe you monetary damages. So instead, the Rothbardian view would be that… There's never a binding promise. There's just title to property. So what the contract to paint your fence really is is a two-way contractual transfer. Number one, the fence owner is telling me, if you paint my fence, then I will transfer $1,000 to you of my money. So it's just a conditional title transfer. But if you, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe that's enough of an incentive to get me to paint the fence. But if he wants to be sure I'm going to paint the fence… He's going to want to have me suffer a penalty if I don't paint the fence, right? So I have to agree to transfer some money to him if I don't paint the fence. I don't know, $10,000, $2,000, $100, something. Now, of course, from my point of view as the fence painter, I would rather just have the option to paint the fence, and if I paint it, I get paid. But I have the option not to paint it. I'd rather have that option. So if he's going to insist that I'm penalized, uh, he's reducing my options. Then he's going to need to probably pay me more, right? So now I'll say, well, if you want me to to potentially be liable, you know, if I get injured tomorrow and I can't paint your fence, then you need to pay me eleven hundred dollars instead. So in other words, it's more expensive to get people to be on the hook for not performing. But anyway, it's just two titles of two transfers of title, both conditional on some specified 
determinable future event or yeah, condition. I, I, right. I guess the specific link that I that I was intending was uh, the whole issue of I, um, IP through contracts regarding buying something in lieu of a title transfer theory rather than a promise theory. Right. So so if you go with this um, if you go with this understanding of copyright, which is Rothbard's by the way. Uh, then you will see why uh, attempts to – some people, what they say is, well, I agree with you that you can't legislate um, uh, copyright and patent, but you could get something like that from contracts. And we, we touched on that earlier with the book, uh, with the book example from Amazon or, 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 or a book publisher. Um, so some people say, well, let's suppose you um, – and even the reason I bring this up is Rothbard – even says this. So Rothbard thinks there's a contractual way you can get something like copyright, um, even though I think it contradicts his own contract theory. Um, so the idea is that let's say you write a novel and you le- you know uh, you sell it to someone and you sell it to them under the condition that they not duplicate it. And I I, I agree that that would be an enforceable contract. Um, I don't think many people would, would agree to it if the damages were – I mean what are the damages going to be, $10 or a $1 million? If they're, if they're not much, then it's not going to do much to stop people from copying it. Uh, but still, the idea is that this book um, – uh, so A has a contract with B, and so B, if B violates the contract, B is liable for damages. I don't disagree with that. Um, but then the question is uh, what about C? So what if I leave the book on a public bench and I, or I lose the book or I have it on my coffee table at my house and a third party – Picks up the book and starts reading it. Now, proponents of the contractual system say that, well, there's a contract on, printed on the first page of the book that says anyone who looks at this is bound by this standard contract in the, in the publisher's guild. Um, uh, or it's just understood that these kinds of things are typically covered by this. So the third party would be bound by it. Uh, well, I don't agree with that. I, I, I don't think that picking up and using an object means consenting to a contract with some remote third party that you've never met. Uh, there's just no justification for that. Um, now, I would agree that if you find property that apparently owns it belongs to another person, that you might be committing trespass if you're using it without their permission, right? But if it's if we presume that it's lost and abandoned, that it's actually an unowned object, and someone else can rehomestead that book and do whatever they want with it. Um, Rothbard gives the example that he says. Now, it's a little bit confusing because he gives the example of a mousetrap, which is typically covered by patent law, which is an invention. Uh, but he uses the word copyright or contractual copyright to cover that. Um, so it's a little bit confusing why he's doing that. But what he says is, for example, someone – imagine someone invents a mousetrap, and it's got a novel feature to it, an invention, an inventive aspect. And he sells it to a, third, a, a second party, but he doesn't sell them the right to copy it. Well, if a third party sees that mousetrap held by the, by the buyer and learns its new feature, well, Rothbard says, well, he, the, the, the buyer can only transmit what he has a right to. He can't transmit it to other people. But I think the problem there is that presupposes that knowledge is ownable. So Rothbard has a, a hidden assumption there that knowledge is property, and that actually is incompatible with his theory. I, don't, I think I, – I actually believe if, if you know, someone had pointed this out to Rothbard – he would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I was going down a rabbit trail there. I goofed up. I actually don't think he would have stuck with it because it was just a, he was just barely flirting with the idea, and he didn't take it too far. Um, so I think all these attempts to contractually enforce IP would fail for those and for other reasons. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much, Stefan Kinsella, for uh, being on Speaking on Liberty uh, from Liberty Minded this morning. Uh, I hope that it has been fun for you. It's been very enlightening for us, and uh, I hope it's been enlightening for those watching. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. You guys are you guys are great. Well, thank I, you think, so- I think you've made intellectual property proponents look so shady. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, very good. that's very good. All right. By the way, uh, let, let me say one. I I I mean I, I didn't come up with these ideas. Um, uh, I think the the primary people that are responsible for these ideas would be like Wendy McElroy and even Sam Agile, Samuel Konkin and even Rothbard to a degree uh, and Tom Palmer, people like that. It's just that these ideas came out pre-95, pre-the internet, and so people sort of – it looked more academic back then. The landscape but, has changed a lot, yeah. Yeah, now, now, it's, now it's a big, big issue, so I'm glad you guys are highlighting it. Okay, well, fantastic. It's, a, it's our pleasure. Um, 
I'm sorry, I usually do, uh, I do usually do my homework on this, but uh, unfortunately I didn't do it this time. Uh, everyone watching should definitely look up uh, all of uh, Stefan Kinsella's uh, articles on uh, Mises.org. Uh, are there any other websites you'd like to pump uh, with your stuff on them? Well, StefanKinsella.com okay, has perfect. all my stuff on there um, and links to everything else. And C4SIF.org uh, is linked, uh, links to most of my IP stuff too. Perfect. I would definitely recommend reading his uh, monograph against intellectual property. And since uh, obviously the subject matter, it's for free on uh, Mises, the Mises yes. Institute's website as a PDF. Yeah, and I'm working on a new one called Copy This Book. So uh, it'll be fr from the ground up, scratch. It might take a year or two to finish, but there will be a, a replacement for that book eventually. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us this evening uh, on uh, Speaking on Liberty. Thanks. This has been a production of LibertyMinded.org.